0: Welcome to another podcast for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Aves Badat and I'm a psychiatrist and teaching fellow based in Gloucester. Today I'm talking to Dr Norman Poole, who's a consultant psychiatrist based in London. We're discussing a very interesting and now rarely used form of treatment, known as the abreaction, known more commonly in films and in popular literature as giving someone a truth drug. This process was used in psychiatry as a therapeutic treatment in the past. Dr Norman Poole and colleagues in London and Turkey investigated the available research papers on our reaction for an unusual type of illness, where the patient may develop sudden or gradual loss of ability to move a limb, or the sudden loss of sight, or loss of ability to speak, and where there's no obvious physical cause. This illness is called conversion disorder because of an older theory that the patient suffers the symptoms because some kind of life stress or painful memory has been converted into a physical phenomenon. Welcome Dr Poole and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here. Could I ask you first to describe the background history relating to abreaction? I mean where did it originate and how did it come into being used in medicine? Sure, I
1: think to begin with we should probably not use the term abreaction. Um, ab-reaction is actually a term that's sort of derived from the theory of the technique. It relates to certain theories about how it may or may not work. So I'd like to keep to the term drug interviews, if if I may, and speak about the the origins of that. The origins are quite interesting, actually. It seemed to develop in parallel in the US and in the UK. In about 1929, a chap called Blackwin in America was inducing long periods of sleep using barbiturates in patients with very agitated mental states such as um, schizophrenia and agitated depression. He would induce these long periods of sleep and whilst the patient was going off to sleep and as they were waking up he noticed that the patient was surprisingly lucid and able to talk about conflicts in their life, about the illness, about future plans in a way that they hadn't been able to um, before. In the UK, it it had a completely sort of separate origin, and there was a chap called Horsley, a psychiatrist, who seemed to be—I'm not entirely sure why—but he was experimenting with amnestic childbirth. So that's trying to induce childbirth mm-hmm. where the where the, um, the the woman who's giving birth has got no memory of it afterwards, and so he was using the same drug, a barbiturate type drug. And he noticed that during these states, the patient seemed more suggestible, um, more able to sort of talk about things, um, conflicts again in their life that they may not have revealed um, before. And afterwards, they had no memory, no recollection for this. Right. So, hoarsely started to experiment with, with this use, um, with, with this in psychiatric patients. Right. So the idea was anyone who's inaccessible for any reason, you um, so f- say they're so depressed that they've become mute, they're withdrawn, they're not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. So he would induce these states, using the barbiturates in these patients... Hopefully getting at some sort of underlying conflict or psychic problem Mm. and then you later use that in psychoanalysis in psychotherapy so it was almost like a sort of shortcut into the unconscious mind. The technique really took off and became very popular during World War Two. During the First World War, there was an awful lot of psychiatric casualties, people who were shell-shocked and so afterwards had to go into war pensions or who weren't able to fulfill any sort of u- so- so-called useful role in society. Yeah. So um, so it was very important in World War Two. The the psychiatrists didn't want this to happen again. Right. They were getting lots of psychiatric casualties. In fact, at one stage, one physician says that psychiatric problems are as serious as the acute abdomen, as, you know, sort of a gunshot in the belly. Yeah. You know, it's so so prevalent. So during World War Two, it was felt that it was useful to know whether somebody had a psychiatric illness, whether the problem, the paralysis or whatever, was caused by some actual physical problem that was going on and also to differentiate between malingerers and those with real problems. And so the drug interview, the inducing um, this kind of hypnotic type state using the drug was thought a much quicker way of working all this out and either sending someone back to the front or getting them out there and, and getting them some proper psychiatric or medical help.
0: Right. So you're saying that it kind of developed partly by accident, but also a sort of guided accident where people discovered that people who might be unconscious of certain painful memories or concealing certain things even from themselves uh, might be able to reveal those things more readily in a more sedative state. But then this has, I guess, some darker connotations and, or perhaps more sensationalist relationships with things like hypnotism and the hypnotised state, where the subject is somehow very suggestible and can be made to do anything that the hypnotizer makes them to do. Are there differences and similarities between these things?
1: Yes, there are. In fact, Horsley was a hypnotist. He was a doctor and also able to hypnotise people. And he called the technique narcosis, meaning a drug-induced, a narcotic-induced hypnosis. Right. So that's one of the one of one of the the early terms for this, for the drug interview. There are similarities, and he experimented with the similarities and differences. So for example, you can suggest to somebody that they are unable to move an arm. You can suggest to somebody that, they're, um, that they've are that they got a loss of sensation somewhere. You could mm-hmm. suggest that they're blind. You could even suggest that they've lost a memory, that they've gained a memory, or that they've become somebody else. So he was experimenting with all these hypnotic phenomena and found that they were exactly replicated with the drug interview. And of course, that to him was the great advantage that you could get someone into a hypnotic state without all of the... Diff- hypnosis requires quite a lot of training and and very uh, skilled practitioners whereas now anybody could go and hypnotize if just if they had a syringe and some barbiturate
0: right. so it took away the the ritual or the perhaps the interpersonal element of the hypnotism and and made it more of a biological process if you like absolutely okay
1: you I Also mentioned about the the sort of the dark connotations. Yes. Um, now I'm I'm not a hypnotist. My understanding is that that hypnotic states cannot actually make somebody do what they absolutely do not want to do. And interestingly, when I was doing one of the, the, this research, there was a paper which looked at exactly that. Can you get somebody um, who tell them to lie and then try to find out whether they're lying or not using mm. this technique? And it seems that you can't actually do that. Right. That you can't get at the truth with somebody. Though, you're absolutely right, the history of the drug interview is that the CIA picked it up and started to use it as a sort of truth serum. And in fact, the most modern record of I have it have been used in in that context was, was for the Mumbai bomber. The Indian Secret Services apparently um, did, did a drug interview on, on the remaining um, terrorist mm. to see what he knew. I don't know what the outcome of that was.
0: Right, right, right. So the CIA... Uh, or sort of bodies who are interested in the truth uh, in that sense, kind of abandoned it because they found it was probably not any more useful than asking a person a question in any case. And what you've said about hypnotism is quite interesting, kind of throws modern perception of hypnotism out the window in that a stage audience can't be made to act in a way unless they're already probably primed to act in a certain way. Yes. So this brings us into your particular paper, which is a very interesting View the particular use of the drug interview, um, and it's to do with conversion disorder. Could you tell us a little bit about conversion disorder? What is it? What happens to people with conversion disorder? And and what are the modern things that are done for people with conversion disorder? Um, So uh, conversion disorder
1: is is quite a fascinating condition um, in which the sufferer's symptoms suggest an underlying neurological type problem that would normally be seen by a neurologist. But extensive investigations reveal that there's absolutely nothing the matter with the uh, with the uh, nervous system. In addition, the actual pattern of symptoms isn't quite in keeping with what you may see in a true neurological condition. So, for example, uh, if somebody has a stroke and they lose sensation down one half of the body, mm. it won't be cut. It, it won't dissect the body exactly down the midline. Whereas with a conversion disorder, if they do lose sensation in one half of the body, it's a straight line right down the midline. Right. So, so it doesn't conform to what we actually know of the underlying nervous system either right. it's more conforms more to what the patient believes about the nervous system the, the, the presentations can either be sensory so for example a loss of touch or vision they can be motor symptoms so that's movement symptoms so a paralysis or a weakness in one or more limbs or they can also be mental symptoms so for example a loss of memory or a loss of personal identity
0: Right, right
1: it's not an uncommon condition It's actually um, about as prevalent as MS, multiple sclerosis. It seems to occur in about 5% of neurology referrals. So 5% of every case that's sent to the neurologist, they feel that there's some element of underlying conversion problem. It's even higher in particular clinics such as epilepsy clinics where up to 20% of patients can have what's called non-epileptic seizures, which is a, a variety of this conversion disorder it's difficult to get estimates for the how common and how how frequent it is in the general population because to diagnose it, one needs to have done a very thorough neurological examination to exclude any underlying neurological conditions. Sure. So, so one can't work out in the same way as you can with depression um, how common it is in the population.
0: That's actually quite interesting. So it's, it's a relatively common problem, but one which I guess the public wouldn't necessarily uh, see as being as common as things like MS, but certainly it's there. Um, So the problem exists, and you did something to investigate the research on whether the drug interview was a useful treatment for it, um, even though this treatment's kind of fallen out of favour. And I guess you were trying to address why the treatment might have fallen out of favour. Is that really why you conducted the research? What drove you to do the research you've done?
1: I was... Interested in carrying out the research because of a particular case that I saw when I was a a senior registrar in neuropsychiatry. We had a case where there was a lady on the neurology ward who was adamant that she had a neurological problem. The neurologist felt sure that this was a conversion problem and we were between a rock and a hard place trying Mm -hmm. to work out exactly what to do with this lady. I was discussing the case with my consultant and we thought that ab reaction or the drug interview mm. would be a possibility. Certainly, um, uh, we knew of other neuropsychiatrists who were using it in similar instances to prove to the patient that perhaps these symptoms um, w- were not neurological in nature. Mm. So, you do the drug interview and hopefully they can start to move their, their limb again, which was, yes. which was the case. Okay. Um, and we decided... On the basis of this, well, let's look at the evidence. Why why is this not used anymore? Um, And so I was rather surprised, actually, that when I looked into the databases and uh, did a literature search, there were no studies that disproved this treatment or that that proved that the treatment was not effective. Mm. So we'd gone from a situation where something was we knew that something was very commonly used Mm. to now something very rarely used. And there was absolutely no evidence to say it was either effective or not effective. So we thought this is clearly an area that that deserves further exploration.
0: Right, right. So you've come to quite an interesting point where you've sort of not ruled out that the treatment was ineffective. In fact, you've got a lot of what are called in the biz as sort of positive trial data without any definitive randomised trials, which is a sort of gold standard we use in testing. What were the problems you discovered when you found the research papers? I mean... Were there problems with the way the investigations were carried out in any way?
1: There were difficulties in that we were looking at papers all the way from the 1930s Mm. to modern day. And so the actual way that conversion disorder has been diagnosed has changed over that time.
0: Right, right.
1: There were also difficulties in the way that the the drug interview technique was described. We also found more... Studies which were rather more scientifically rigorous, which were trying to compare the treatment with, um, with a different kind of treatment. Yeah. None of these were randomised control trials, which is considered the gold standard for a trial. Well, none of them were of that, of that level of quality. Okay. And the actual way that they had been carried out, there were, there were methodological problems with that.
0: Okay. But you did find a set of conclusions. What did the results basically tell you about the usefulness of this technique and what can we tell about the effect it had on patients?
1: Well, this study certainly found that of those cases reported, about 80% of them got better using the technique. Mm. Now, this study that we have done is not one a study that compares this technique versus another technique, sure. so you can't tell the how how good it is in comparison to doing nothing or doing something else. Yeah. What you can see is that 80% of reported cases have um, mm-hmm. have, have responded positively. Right. Now, of course, clinicians tend to write up cases only when they have had a good outcome. Yeah. So there is a, a what we call publication bias in there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what we were able to do was look at what are the factors that make a positive outcome more likely or less likely. So what we found, for example, was that if somebody has a comorbid psychiatric problem such as depression or anxiety, that makes them less likely to respond if you're using this technique. Right. We also found that if you combine two medications, a sedative medication and also an amphetamine-type medication, we found that that combination predicted poor response what we did find um, which is quite intriguing actually is that Suggestion, so making heavy suggestions um, implying that this treatment is going to be effective Mm. was definitely associated with a positive outcome and so was the patient having an emotional catharsis what we mean by that is a sort of emotional outpouring so uh, becoming um, tearful, agitated, collapsing in a sort of very emotional state that was also found to be associated with a good outcome Right. So it seemed that these patients got quite worked up by the process, mm-hmm. became very emotional and then the symptom resolved, right. which goes back to the kind of conversion idea.
0: It's very interesting because I, I guess a sociologist might comment on this as, as the ritual and ceremony uh, of, of breakthrough in a way that the patient presents with something rather mysterious and they're hesitant and the clinician somehow holds the keys to some sort of gate which then opens and the patient is then put in touch with whatever in a way, it was sort of Hollywood-esque in in a way. And I guess that's why it has been used, misused, and then reported on in in popular literature. But this still doesn't quite answer the question of why it fell out of favour with psychiatrists. And what do you think, on reflection, was the reason it fell out of favour? And do you think there's a place for it in modern medicine? I think that the reason
1: it fell out of favour is there's, there's a number of reasons for that. I think one of the reasons is because the diagnosis of conversion disorder fell out of favour. So psychiatrists stopped believing in this condition and stopped diagnosing it and stopped seeing it and sort of left the neurologist to deal with it on their own in their clinics. Right. Another reason, I believe, is that the... The, even the term abreaction is very sort of caught up in psychodynamic theory. So although it's a it's a drug interview and it would seem very medical, it was actually caught up really a lot with, with psychoanalysis. And mm. so with the decline in psychoanalysis, I think it's, it, it has fallen out of favour. I think it has also fallen out of favour because we don't know how this treatment works. And I think generally mm. doctors like to know what their treatment is doing. They like to be able to persuade the patient that this is why this is going to be an effective treatment for you. Yes. Um, And I think that that reflects a changing power dynamic between the doctor and the patient. And clearly this is a procedure where the patient is extremely passive and the doctor... Holds all the uh, holds all the cards, so yes. to speak, yeah, yeah. and I, and I think that the changing relationship between doctor and patient has probably also made people feel much more uncomfortable about sedating somebody and talking about very emotional issues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think the final point is the 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 concern that arose in the 1980s about eliciting false memories yes, yes. and whether. a a sort of uh, overly enthusiastic psychiatrist could actually encourage the patient to believe something had happened that in fact hadn't happened Mm -hmm. so i think all these conspired together to make people very uncomfortable with the treatment and then of course we've got the you know the advent of the ssri antidepressant medications lots of new different types of psychiatric drugs so we we've got something to replace it with as
0: well Right. So it still seems as if it it does have a place in certain corners of medicine, particularly where neurology and psychiatry meet. You've certainly witnessed it work in a few cases, so it's not out of favour altogether. And perhaps in the right conditions, it still merits a place in the arsenal of things that a doctor might use to help patients.
1: I think I think that it may do. I think what our study has done is it's shown that the that the reason people stopped doing abreaction or drug interviews was not because it was ineffective. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that it's effective or ineffective. My feeling is that there should now be a study that looks at the effectiveness of this treatment. Oh, there are other treatments that doctors give that were not that we don't actually understand exactly why they work. ECT, for example, is a commonly given treatment, and we don't know why that works. So, certainly
0: a very, very interesting topic. Thank you very much for coming to talk to us about it, Dr. Poole. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.